Did You Read? with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to the latest edition of Did You Read? the Times Opinion podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times Opinion pages, and this week I'm joined by Ian King, David Aronovich and Libby Pavis. With his pledge to reintroduce a 50p additional rate of income tax, at is as euphemistically described, Ed Miliband has abandoned any pretense that a Labour government led by him will have a constructive working relationship with business or wealth creators. It is a depressing prospectus. The conventional wisdom is that parties are too much alike, but often they strive to emphasise difference where there is little to create blue water for the sake of it. Sometimes, as in the case of Scottish nationalism, this entails what sociologists call an othering of another group, in this case the imagined English, to justify separation. And in case you wondered, I don't like it. I say no more first ladies, not anywhere. It's degrading to women as individuals, it reduces them to unreliable bits of decor. Even if some do it gracefully, for every Sarah Brown, there'll be an Imelda, for every Michelle, a Cherie. The leader's bedmate is not relevant. Keep her or him out of the picture. So those are our topics for today. And Ian, we're going to start with your topic. It's dominated the news at the start of the week. And... Um, it was one of the defining features of New Labour that they pledged not to raise the top rates of income tax. It seems to be one of the defining features of the two Ed's Labour Party, Balls and Miliband, that actually they do want to raise tax on the higher earners. You think this is a very bad thing? Mm, I do. It's obviously, it's for political reasons. This is not, as said, Ball said in his speech on Saturday, anything to do with reducing the deficit at all. The amounts that will be raised from this are absolutely negligible, as the Institute for Fiscal Studies has pointed out. At best, it will probably raise £100 million. Probably, it could even deter wealth creators from this country and actually lose money. So, strip the economics out to one side. That's a complete red herring. This is all about politics and it's all about shoring up Labour's core vote. It is popular though. When All opinion polls suggest that this is what voters want and um, that seems to be what's tempting Labour to go down this path. Well, the Conservatives have had lots of uh, policies over the last decade which supposedly voters like. You know, they've made all the right noises on immigration and welfare. It didn't stop them losing three general elections between <laughs> 1997 and uh, 2005. Uh, Libby, there was a, a YouGov opinion poll in the Times on Tuesday which said that 40% of the British people would like higher taxes on top earners, even if it brought in no revenue whatsoever. There does seem to be a punish the wealthy, punish the high earners mentality out there. There is, yes. I mean, I actually, I don't believe for a minute that it would deter these wealth creators because I, I think it's other things which do that, like, you know, terribly high business rates and, and really stupid red tape and, and so on. Um, but, I mean, it is unfortunately a fact that uh, it does seem that the tax take goes up when you reduce that top rate for some reason, which I don't yeah, entirely, the curve. entirely understand. But there, there you are, that's the Laffer curve. So, uh, but, but I mean, it is, it is political and it is this sort of, we are irritated by rich people thing. But if you really think about it, take somebody earning 250k, uh, the rise would only mean they paid another 5,000 a year. 
you know, which just basically kind of makes it a bit more difficult to service the swimming pool, I suppose, or <laughs> pay pay one of the housekeepers. But it's not, it it, it, it isn't that huge on individuals. It, so I I I, dis, I dislike the the envy, but I also think that the the, the policy is is nonsense and and. But, but Libby, don't you think this is the beginning of the tax rises? If you look at the size of the deficit and Labour's reluctance to at the moment commit to spending cuts, they are announcing this tax rise. But if they are going to close the deficit if they come into power actually a lot of taxes would have to go up if they're not willing to make the kind of spending right up to the good old harold wilson years wasn't it 90 percent? what did it go up to sort of 83 percent on income i think and 98 percent on savings that's right and that's that's a very good point um when uh, when the conservatives came to power in 1979 the top one percent paid 11 percent of all income tax now they pay 30 percent and that is a direct result of taxes coming down at the top rate. It's the Laffer curve. When you reduce taxes at a certain level, you opt to, I mean, it's, what you want to do is essentially optimise the tax, tax take. And plenty of research has been done on this over the years. And the rate at which you optimise tax take is at 40%. Anything above that. And you, you do, I'm afraid, start to put off people from... Uh, entering your jurisdiction. So, David Aronovitz, this is well, a Well, I had no idea that produ- 40% actually was such a magic figure, Ian. I, I, I'd assumed, in my naivety, that it was one of these sort of things that the politicians had, re- had reached rather arbitrarily. Um, although, actually, of course, it's 45 uh, pence now, because although George Osborne wanted to take it down, the Conservatives saw that they couldn't take it down to 40 because there would be a public reaction. And that is exactly the same public reaction, which is why Ed Miliband is saying that he will take it back to 50 pence. Now, if it doesn't raise much money, it doesn't lose the people who pay it very much money. In other words, I don't really think it has very much effect one way or the other. So the reality behind this is that what the Labour needs has to do is it has, it's, it's now planning to bring in a, um, a, a almost a kind of legally binding target for, for having to balance the budget. This is going to be incredibly unpopular with the left in the Labour Party and with trades unions and so on. And that you can quite clearly see the 50p as a trade-off, as one of the trade-offs you're going to get against that. The other trade-offs we're going to get are if uh, things like property taxes on on, on so-called uh, on on the wealthy or the so-called mansion taxes. Which the Liberal Democrats are talking about I think in Tuesday's which, newspaper. Which both, which all, which are very, it's very likely to happen if you think that one of the likely outcomes of the next election is another hung parliament and so on. If, if you discover that Labour and the Liberal Democrats have a similar policy for something like the mansion tax, then in that case you can see it as a real possibility. Now, <laughs> This is highly ironic for me as I expressed on this programme before, I live in a house which is valued like this. There's nothing like a mansion, but it's just in the wrong place. Uh, and there are, of course, and it's, uh, my wife said today, it's great news for bankers, the mansion tax, because it means that all the kind of relatively less well-off people than bankers the will have to sell up and they can just come in through the middle. <laughs> However, uh, this was about the 50p, and I really am not exercised about it one way or another. It's a pure piece of politicking either way, I reckon. How, how dangerous is it, uh, Libby, for the Conservatives if they go into the next election looking like they're protecting the wealthy and it's the Liberal Democrats and Labour are promising to increase taxes on the wealthy? Because party of the rich label is, has been a constant problem for the Conservatives. 
Well, it has been, and I suppose it has some effect. But, um, I mean, good God, we've had that. this appalling comedian Rufus Hound uh, blogging the other day, David Cameron wants your children to die so he can <sighs> share the NHS money out with him and his rich cronies. Yeah. You know, what the fact he hasn't been banned from the BBC for this yet is an amazing thing to me. But do I you know, do I think, think you've just created a new story. I think, it's out on, I, I think it's out on the edge, that. I think it's just... Um, uh, it's out on the edge. I, I think people want efficiency. I really think that a sense of something efficient and that would actually work is the thing which makes people uh, cling uh, on. And on that basis, Ian King, Tuesday morning we had growth figures of 0.7%. The, right. the recovery seems to be delivering more or less on time for George Osman and David Cameron. Yeah, I think there's something in these figures for everyone, really. Uh, at an uh, annualised growth rate of 1.9%, uh, that is the strongest rate of growth since the uh, beginning of the financial crisis. That is obviously pretty good news for the Chancellor. From uh, Labour's point of view, they can turn around and say that uh, overall GDP is still 1.3% lower than it was in the first quarter of 2008. So we still haven't yet clawed back all of the capacity that was lost during the crisis. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 was gonna say, I don't think that a high rate of growth does the Tories good versus Labour. I think a rate of growth does, but I've never thought... The question is, if you have a high rate of growth, where do the proceeds of growth go to? If you don't have a high rate of growth, that question doesn't really <laughs> arise. So you want a lot of broke bankers. <laughs> in a way, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And, of course, a uh, topic we'll be returning to in another podcast is, is the connection between rising growth and rising uh, standards of living. But, David, uh, your topic is differences between political parties <laughs> and exaggerate. And I don't know whether the 50p, 45p yeah, debate quite fits into no, no, this. It abso- no, it, 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 it absolutely does. I mean, if you think about how little man- man- amount of money that actually represents, then the attempt to try and construct the Tories into a kind of Rufus Hound, they're killing your children element, as a different from a Labour Party, which can't actually and couldn't spend very much more on the NHS. We can talk about reorganisation, mm. Lance's daft reorganisation in a kind of different way and so on but nevertheless so what you see is a classic example of trying to create difference between the political parties in order to say we have something completely distinct from them they're on the side of the rich we're on the side of the this they're against wealth creators we're for them and so on and this is and that's part of the game i mean i i I, I slightly felt it last week when listening to a Michael Gove speech, which was utterly and completely reasonable and consensual about what educators know are the great challenges of education. The week after he'd written that thing about the First World War, in which he'd slammed left-wing academics as if they were the people who thought the First World War only was a bad idea. <laughs> I just thought, this is really an attempt to construct a bit of difference. And then I looked in, you know, following the Scottish referendum a lot, and there's a very subtle way, it is subtle these days, in which pro independence, intelligentsia and literati and the SNP try to suggest that the English and the Scots are just so different from each other mm. when actually uh, all the polling evidence is about social attitudes is that they're pretty similar. Libby Purvis. It's very interesting what, what David has brought up here because we all know about the imaginary enemies because if you're a columnist and you write something that somebody disagrees with, they will immediately invent your entire life and attitudes into something <laughs> quite different. I mean, I once wrote a, a thing about a thing about sort of liberal education and so on and I got extraordinary sort of letter from somebody sort of saying I know exactly how you live you live in Hampstead and your children go to some free school where they don't have to do lessons you know and you grew up in the pony club <laughs> south no you know I lived in Suffolk was was a bit broke and my children went to 
to a um, naval school where they marched around in uniforms. But he had to invent a version of me to hate. And we all. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. People do this. I mean, p- people do it in politics sort of worse than anything else. The current toff bashing, the idea that because somebody went to Eton, they're in some way evil and hate you is just ridiculous. But we all do little bits of it. I mean, I've always been convinced that everyone on The Guardian despises me. I don't know why, but I think The Guardian despises <laughs> me. Uh, you know, and, and I've got, I meet Guardian people, they're perfectly pleasant, um, but I, I need this artificial enemy. We all do. I bet you've got some, David. Yes, I think I probably have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, David doesn't have artificial enemies. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, that's true. Also, some differences are real. <laughs> um, Ian King, uh, one thing that Conservatives are going to say at the next general election is they really are going to present the Labour Party, back to our first conversation, as a very different order of political opponent than uh, Britain they have faced. Britain has possibly wanted to elect for a long time that Labour is a much bigger threat because of its policy on energy prices and tax. Uh, than the old, the new Labour Party of, of Tony Blair. Do you buy that, or does this fit in with David Aronovich's idea that actually political differences are being greatly exaggerated? I think that's probably true. Um, I think David's right. If you look at the fact that the the more moderate voices within Labour, uh, the Liam Burns of this world, have been completely sidelined. You know, poor old David Miliband's had to clear off to the United States mm-hmm. and duck out of politics altogether. Alistair Darling has been sort of shunted off up into Scotland to, you know, try and defend the union. Um, where where are the moderate Blairite voices in the Labour Party anymore? One just doesn't hear them. And is that because? they are completely silent and not wouldn't have influence on a Labour government or do you think if Labour were in actually they would they would matter again they would be running departments they would pull the government in a certain direction well if if Labour come to power next time round one would one would think that they would want a few uh, wise old old heads to uh, come in and who've done this sort of thing before who've been a minister before and they will have some. But there, there, there are, I mean, you can't use the term Blairite anymore because, largely because, I mean, you know, it doesn't really have meaning in the context of a Labour Party 10 years later or uh, 10 years on. But if you look at people like Tristram Hunt and Stella Creasy and people like this, you have a very substantial degree of continuity with what you might describe as being new Labour. Now, again, 
part of the problem for Ed Miliband was he had to define himself against that in order to win the victory he won and so on. But he is a continual work in progress. Uh, in fact, he's a work in progress that will never stop being a work in progress. I think you're only ever going to see the foundations and maybe a little bit of the lower walls, uh, actually. It's the fourth true, bridge of British politics. <laughs> <laughs> true of nearly all leaders of opposition, really, to be fair. We only really know the strength of a leader when they're in hot water. There's like a lot of truth in that. I mean, Tony um, Blair said that he, d he didn't really start governing properly as himself until a year and a half into his prime ministership. Mm. So you're right. And just to throw this whole debate back at you, um, David, you say that um, politicians exaggerate differences with each other. Well, what about us as we as columnists with our uh, whole writing style, the whole need for to provoke and to entertain? Are we as guilty of this as politicians? Uh, not us columnists, you commissioning editors, because you keep on <laughs> demanding that we be more extreme or you praise us for our most kind of extremist columns and so on. I've never, ever had such a good reaction from commissioning editor as when I said that Ed Miliband ought to F off, um, essentially. Uh, no, no, I mean, of course, uh, uh, actually, different columnists do different things. I, I, I go for the subtlety yeah. of uh, our bread. But you're right, a lot of us do do that. I Libby. Won't, I won't play. I just won't play that game. I, I, I am incapable of being all that extreme. I mean, for, to some people, some things I say might feel extreme, but You've I just don't like it. You've got an against you in the Daily Telegraph, didn't I you? did, <laughs> yes, and why they couldn't have sent the money to the Times, I do not know. It's not fair. Well, you are a model of virtue and moderation compared to the rest of us, uh, Libby. And... Um, Talking about models of um, virtue and moderation, the third topic uh, is yours, and it's the subject of first ladies. But actually, you don't see them quite as uh, virtuous and moderate and wonderful as perhaps we've traditionally seen I them. I now contradict myself entirely because I'm really getting quite extreme on this one. <laughs> no more political first ladies. Royalty, fine. If that rocks your boat, does rock my boat, that's fine. But the ridiculous affair of Monsieur Hollande absolutely puts the lid on it. He doesn't even marry them. He dumps one mistress. He sets up the next as a first lady with her own expensively run office and plans to go to Washington with him to hang out with Michelle Obama. Then he dumps her and the whole world laughs and well we might because this whole fashion, increasing fashion actually over recent decades for making leaders' wives into iconic national hostesses is ridiculous. Ted Heath got by without one. Mary Wilson and Dennis Thatcher kept their heads down. But even bright women like Michelle Obama and Sam Cam just end up being the subject of this endless rubbish about their toned upper arms and their fashion sense. I mean, why do they even go to party conferences? CEOs' wives don't go and sit in the boardroom next to them looking up adoringly, do they? These, they're not relevant they should not be made into celebrities by virtue of marrying somebody. It is degrading to their individuality as women, and they certainly shouldn't ever be quasi-official with their own little offices. It, I hate it. I'm getting really, really extreme on this one. If Hillary, David Clinton, if Hillary Clinton becomes the first woman president of the United States, and I hope she does, what are they going to call Bill? What are they going to call him? You can, it's it's, it's, it's the they're never going to call him the first man. <laughs> the first judge. It's, it's ludicrous. So it, it, I mean, so just at the most basic level, it's sexist. It just is. It just is. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a hangover. However, the notion of politicians as uh, having a human being attachment 
which we personify in terms of the first lady or the partner, etc., that fulfills some kind of deeper psychological function, actually, for us. Uh, it may be that it simply gives us a way of trying to judge them without us having to work out whether the 50p tax but, rate is right or not. But you uh, can't Libby. judge them because actually nobody can see inside anybody else's marriage. All you see is this desperate bit of window dressing. And I do not like women being used as that kind of window dressing. As I say, if I read one more article, and it may well turn up in T2, God knows, about Michelle Obama's toned upper arms, I shall rip the paper up and jump on it. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's repulsive. Ian King, it's uh, Libby right about this. Do, do chief executives ever turn up at summits and conferences <laughs> with their wives or husbands or partners? You see them at uh, the old black tie dinner and so on occasionally, but not uh, now. I mean, it'd be, it would be fr frowned on by the uh, corporate governance <laughs> uh, crew for sure. <laughs> but, well, of course, the black tie dinner thing is, I mean, that, that's sort of slightly different, you know, because anybody might take a plus one, you know, lesser people might take a mm. plus one. But it's this constant sort of showing off of the wives. And you get these people like, I mean, Samantha Cameron, she, she's got a business to run and she's got uh, she's got children to run and what does she why does she ever have to turn up gazing adoringly at Cameron? No, it is, it is as you say ludicrous I mean who is uh, going back to Hillary Clinton who's the real Hillary Clinton first lady Hillary Clinton uh, th then they all got cross when Hillary Clinton tried to get into health care and things like that she actually wanted to do something with her time she then becomes an incredibly successful Secretary of State I wish she was still Secretary of State and so on because I think we'd have had a better uh, second term Obama Middle East policy if she had been uh, and so on, far more kind of strategic and robust. Uh, it was always absurd to have to th be talking about her hair. I think she said some interesting things about, you know, she could do kind of big foreign policy things. Nobody take any notice, but she had to change her hairstyle. In that case, there'd be endless features about she'd it. She'd have done better. I still think, though, she'd have done better. Uh, to have butted out of politics for the duration of his presidency and worked for charities and things. As Sarah Brown did, you know, yeah. non-political charities. Do your charities, then come I back into right. politics. Yeah. Because the, the mixture is just weird. Mm. You know, it's somebody unelected and yet somehow frightfully important. Ian King? But do you not think, though, if you look back to when Dennis Thatcher was Mrs Thatcher's consort or whatever the term, the term you want to use, I mean, he wasn't... Uh, around in an era of 24-hour news and media scrutiny to the extent that uh, we have now. I suspect if he'd carried on now in the way he did then, he'd be all over the newspapers constantly. <laughs> he'd be all over Sky News, you know, stumbling out of the golf club after one too many pink gins. I think that is his right. He worked a long time, poor Dennis, in, in a tough business, and um, one is entitled in retirement well, to stumble well, uh, out of pubs. I agree, but the point is he would <laughs> have still been subject to, have to, to scrutiny. Woman. He would have still been, you know, there would have still been pieces assessing, you know, the cut of his suits and all the rest well, of it. Well, given that his uh, private views were very much in line with Godfrey Bloom's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think yeah, a exactly. lot of that had come out at the time. He'd I mean, be everywhere. He around, yeah. yeah, he would be. <laughs> yeah, but he, never, but he didn't well. ever express those views on, on a public platform. He didn't, well, go out, he didn't go out making speeches. But we had stage plays. We had anything for Dennis. We had the Dear Bill thing in uh, Private Eye. That was us. No, but these that days, was the but was these days his yeah. texts would leak. Yeah. <laughs> but as much as you would wish this, Libby, we had a piece in Saturday's Times from Raphael Baer of the New Statesman and he actually was saying, if you look at Miriam, you look at Sam, you look at Justine, the, the wives of the three main leaders, he was saying in terms of their professionalism, in terms of their contact with the, the real world, they look for the politicians as huge assets. 
and they connect those politicians with what life is like today. And so it's not going to change, is it? This is maybe a desire of yours, but politicians know that this works. Not with life as it is, with a fantasy life. They I am, entitled, with a fantasy I am life. entitled to dream of a day <laughs> when politicians can be judged on what they do and what they say and not on their clothes and not on their look and not on which school they went to and not who they happen to go to bed. She has a dream. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it may be a dream that isn't quite come to reality anytime soon. But that, unfortunately, is all the time we have in this week's podcast. But thank you very much to my guests, Ian, David and Libby, and also to my producer, Dave McGuire. If anyone wants to read some of the articles that we've been discussing in this week's podcast, subscribers to The Times can go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central and all of the articles are listed in that blog and also via that blog you can subscribe to this podcast via itunes and listen to previous editions until next week are you ready for truly hydrated skin meet hyaluronic body serum a breakthrough in body care from osea it's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161 percent Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.